The phrase love wins and the accompanying hashtag have been used for many purposes. Ten years ago, it was the title of Rob Bell's book in which he advocated wrongly that all people, even those in hell, would eventually be saved because of God's amazing love. For how can a loving God send people to eternal torment forever was his argument. At the end, he proposes love wins. In June of 2015, the hashtag love wins trended on social media platforms after the historical U.S. Supreme Court ruling that allowed people of the same gender in America to marry each other. The hashtag love wins was used almost 5.5 million times in 24 hours, with 2 million photos with the same hashtag uploaded on Instagram. Adweek reported that there were 630,000 images posted with the hashtag love wins in the first six hours after the marriage equality decision. This hashtag has also been used to support racial diversity and to combat racism in a response to a controversial Old Navy ad in 2015. But what does the phrase love wins mean for a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ? In today's culture, love has been defined in such a way that one must accept all lifestyles, choices, and beliefs. Of course, we are to love all people as God loves all people, but loving people somehow is expanded into loving what they believe and do, regardless if what they believe and do is contrary to what the Bible teaches. This is why it's important to redefine love, to bring back a biblical understanding of love and its expressions instead of a worldly or self-serving definition of love. This will help us build up a confident faith. So we continue our sermon series titled Unshakable, studying the book of 1 John together. We want to learn how we can build up a confident faith that will allow us to be unshakable in challenging times, especially when the world is redefining what loving one another means. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John as we take a look at chapter 3, verses 10 to 23. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 23, as we draw out how to redefine love through a biblical framework and worldview. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 23, in this section, the Apostle John, in writing to his Christian readers, will speak about love as an expression of righteousness. Look with me at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Here John begins this new section by telling the readers that the evidence between a Christian, the children of God, and a non-Christian, the children of the devil, is seen through their love for one another. You see, John considered love as a natural expression of a new life in Christ. For him, love is righteousness in action. Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In fact, John says to the Christian readers, this truth is nothing new. It isn't something they haven't heard before. In fact, they were reminded many times that they should love one another. Now, John will offer an interesting example of love in action, but from a negative perspective. Look at verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. John brings in the example of Cain, who murdered his own brother Abel, whom he should have loved. And Cain did this terrible act not only because he was evil, but because Abel was more righteous than him. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. 
But God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, as Genesis chapter 4 tells us. Instead of love, admiration, and appreciation, there was hatred due to jealousy because perhaps somehow Abel's righteousness made Cain feel guilty about his own lack of righteousness. It is the same today where Christians do not like other Christians who are more spiritual, holy, Christ-like, to the point of hatred and rejection. It's like having a spiritual crab mentality, where when someone tries to be more spiritual and desires to live out a consistent Christ-like life according to biblical principles, instead of encouraging this behavior and cheering them on, we try to pull them down to our own low spiritual level, not wanting our family or friends to be more spiritual than you, because then it makes you feel guilty about how you live. How does it make you feel when someone more spiritual than you is convicted not to watch a movie or a Netflix show, listen to a song, or to read a book that you enjoy, but that you know may not be pleasing to the Lord? Does it make you feel guilty? And if so, how then do you react or treat those people? With love or with disdain? That is the point of John bringing up the example of Cain in this discussion of loving one another. Then John continues in verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. This again emphasizes the point that the world hates those who are righteous or trying to live righteous lives according to the Scripture. The world will not respect you for speaking up for what the Bible says. The world will not respect you or appreciate you when you try to live out a Christ-like life. The world will not like you when you call them out for doing things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches, even if it's done out of love and respect. You see, when the world talks about love, they say it is evidence through the actions of acceptance, tolerance, and respect of people with differences of opinion and beliefs. But sadly, this love only applies if you hold to their same range of secular beliefs and spectrum of secular thought. Christian righteousness and biblical standards do not fall under this umbrella of acceptance and tolerance in love. So this means this definition of love is faulty. The point of John in these verses, when he tells us to love one another, is to point us away from defining love as the acceptance of all and the tolerance of wrongs, but instead redefines love as the upholding of righteousness and truth. Putting it all together, love redefined number one. Love is not the tolerance of wrongs, but the upholding of righteousness and truth. Love is not the tolerance of wrongs, but the upholding of righteousness and truth. Love does not mean that everyone gets an equal say on something, especially when they are espousing something that is wrong. Love corrects the wrong and reveals the truth. In fact, when you love someone, you'll be willing to go the extra mile and to the extent of correcting them even if they don't want to hear what you're saying, even if they don't like you for what you are about to tell them, but you do it anyways because you care for them. Love is not the tolerance of wrongs, wickedness, and sin. You see, this culture's mindset is if you love me, you will just leave me alone and let me live the way I want to live. If you love me, just let me do what I want to do, even if it brings about self-harm. If we see self-harm happening, or a belief of wrong leading to harm, would you and I want to intervene out of love? For example, if you see a friend about to jump off a bridge, or you see your family members cutting themselves, 
or you see your children making some harmful choices in life, you and I will surely intervene because we love them. Even if they yell or scream at you to let them do what they want to do, you and I will intervene out of love. What if your friend's belief will destine them for eternal separation from God in hell? Would you intervene to share with them the truth out of love to show them the path of salvation? You see, my friends, it takes both love for a person and love for truth that will get us to move, to action, to do what is needed to be done to confront the world. I'm reminded of a story of a group of college students who were touring the slums of a city one day when one of the girls, seeing a little girl playing in the dirt, asked their guide, why doesn't her mother clean her up? Young lady, he replied, that girl's mother probably loves her, but she doesn't hate dirt. You hate dirt, but you don't love her enough to go down there and clean her up. Unless hate for dirt and love for that child are in the same person, that little girl is likely to remain as she is. I hope you see my point. Similarly, unless hate for sin and love for the sinner gets into one person, he or she will do little about the plight of the lost. If love is righteousness in action, as we love the people, we must also desire to uphold righteousness and truth and not the acceptance of all and the tolerance of wrongs. But we remember also as we live out this type of righteous love as followers of Jesus Christ, remember there is a fine line between doing it out of love in a gracious manner versus doing so in spiritual pride and having a quote-unquote holier-than-thou attitude. You and I have to check our hearts if our desire is to lovingly see a sinner corrected or if you are pridefully establishing yourself as being better or more spiritual than someone else when wrongs are pointed out. For example, if you see a family member or close friend living in a lifestyle that is contrary to what is taught in Scripture, one approach is to go up to them and tell them to change now because they're going to hell or they're living in direct contradiction to what the Bible says. But if this is your approach, I can guarantee you they will simply tune you out, not listen to you, and walk away, and they will be closed to you. But another approach is to graciously and lovingly befriend them. Show them genuine concern and care. Earn their trust. Show them that you love them and only want the best for them. And then prayerfully find the opportunity to turn the conversation spiritual one day, to show them in the Scriptures where the life they live may be in conflict with biblical truths. They would then be more open to listen to you. What I'm trying to say is that the upholding of truth and righteousness is to be expressed in a loving way. Now let's move on to another redefinition of love. Look at verses 14 to 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here in verse 14, John notes that when we love one another, it is one of the clearest examples of our conversion, clear evidence of our new life in Christ. But that phrase, he who does not love his brother abides in death, means there are Christians who do not love others, and so they are living like the unbelieving world in whose sphere of influence and practice they should have left but are still emulating. In fact, John writes in verse 15 that the ultimate expression of hatred is murder, and that one who would hate to the hypothetical extent of murdering someone, even if he or she is a Christian, 
isn't abiding with Christ, meaning he is not in an intimate relationship with Jesus. While one may have many extreme reasons why someone out of hatred would murder someone else, that option should not be on the table for a believer if that person understands how a new life abiding in Christ should change how we treat one another. John is using the imagery of death and life to emphasize the great contrast between hatred and love. As Christians experience moving from death to life, that it should follow that they will move from hatred of others to loving one another as believers. You see, love redefined number two is this. Followers of Jesus love one another because they are new creations in Christ. Followers of Jesus love one another because they are new creations in Christ. If I were to ask you why you love someone, the answer would probably fall into three general categories. Because one, they deserve it. Secondly, because you're supposed to love them. And thirdly, because it's the right thing to do and I get something out of it. First, you love because they deserve it. You love your parents because they raised you and housed you and took care of you. You love your teacher because she taught you how to read or impacted your life somehow. You love your pastor because he helped you through a difficult time in your life. You love a police officer because he once saved your life. You love your friend because he gave you one of his kidneys or she donated part of her liver. This is loving those who deserve to be loved. Second, you love because you're supposed to. You love your spouse, mom and dad, brother and sister, your children, your grandparents, because they are family, and you are supposed to love your family. The third area of why people love is because they think it is the right thing to do, which in turn they will benefit from it. It is what the world calls, quote-unquote, karma in the non-technical sense. If I love others, I will be loved in return. If I do good to them out of love, then good things will be done for me in return. What goes around comes around. Or another variation of this idea is if I love others and do good, I will get to go to heaven or be reincarnated to a higher form or somehow reach enlightenment. But in the Scriptures, we are called to love one another because we are new creations in Jesus Christ. Loving others is and should be a natural byproduct of our new life in Christ and is clear evidence of our conversion. How? Let's note a few things. First, as recipients of God's grace and salvation, it should change our perspective that as one who received unconditional love when we did not deserve it, we can extend the same unconditional love to people who also do not deserve it. This is very different from how the world says we are to love only those who deserve being loved. This is how we can love our enemies. This is how we can love fellow Christians who have taken advantage of us. This is how we can love people who annoy us how we can love people who are different from us because they should be extended loving grace just as we received it from Christ as new creation. Second, as a new creation in Christ, we love not because we have to, but because we want to. You see, if you only love because you have to, like family members, then you will stop loving them because there are certain family members that are very hard to love. But as new creations in Christ, we want to love others. The reason we want to is not only because God commands it, but because as new creations in Christ, your heart should beat the same as God's. And as God loves all people and cares deeply for all types of people, that we should have the same loving compassion for all people as God does. 
especially since all people are precious in God's sight and they are uniquely created in the image and likeness of Him. That means even if family, friends, and strangers do us wrong and they are hard to love because they have sinned against us or they're simply annoying, we still love them because Jesus loves them. When our heart beats the same as God's for others, we will see people as God sees people, people whose lives are so full of worth and precious that He would send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. Third, Christians who are new creations in Christ do not love because they get something out of it, but because everything has already been given to them. We don't love because doing so earns us entry into heaven. It is because we are already children of God with salvation and eternal life secured that we love one another. Because fellow Christians are all in the same team, going to the same place to live forever together. So why not start now in this present life? In fact, as new creations in Christ, there is no need for comparison, competition, manipulation, or using others because we can self-sacrifice and desire the best for others because we realize we've already received so much from the Lord God by His grace that I desire others to also have the same benefits that I've received. This redefined love allows our love to be lived out purely and different from the world's love. A Christian's love should be genuine based on the truth that we are all new creations in Christ. This is how Christians can love the unloved. This is what some would call radical love, loving with no strings attached, where you don't expect to get anything in return when you love, because you've already found satisfaction when you receive grace from our Lord God. This redefined love will transform your life. Once you've been touched by the love of the Lord in your innermost being, no one will have to tell you to love your enemies or to be patient with difficult family members, or to love the unlovable. You will just do it because your will will have the same desire as God the Father who is love. The great Christian thinker and writer G.K. Chesterton was a big defender of fairy tales. He said that fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. And his favorite fairy tale was Beauty and the Beast because it teaches that the unlovely must be deeply loved before they become lovable. He says that the most noble lesson behind the fable of Beauty and the Beast is that one must be loved in order to become lovable. Someone treated like an animal will become an animal. Someone treated with dignity, worth, and beauty as a human being will become a human being. The unlovely must be deeply loved before they become lovable. The Scriptures remind us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still unlovely because of our sin, Christ showed His love for us by dying for us. Followers of Jesus love and can love one another because they are new creations in Christ. Look with me now at verse 16. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here in verse 16, we have the perfect example of love for others. In contrast to the example of Cain, we have the perfect example of Jesus Christ who laid down His life for us. And because of this example of Jesus' willingness to lay down His life, then we should be willing to do almost anything for the sake of love for others. 
I remember the story of a father who had to go out of town away from his young family for three to four days on a business trip. Worried that his children would drive his wife crazy, he had a word with his oldest son, who was nine at the time. He said to his son, when I'm away, I want you to think about what I would normally do around the house, and you do it for me. He had in mind, of course, cleaning up the kitchen, washing the dishes, making the bed, taking out the garbage, and helping to keep the other children in line. When the father came back from his business trip, he asked his wife what the son had done. Well, the wife replied, it was very strange. Right after breakfast, he made himself another cup of coffee, went into the living room, put on some loud music, and read the newspaper for half an hour. The father was left wondering if his son had obeyed him a bit too accurately. The Scriptures tell us to watch what our Heavenly Father has done and then to do the same ourselves. So what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, God himself, to lay down his life for us, to show us what love is. And through his example, we are to emulate it towards others, to show them the type of love God has for them. So I have one question for you. If you say you love one another, to what extent are you willing to show your love for one another? How far are you willing to go in light of what Christ has done for you to show his love? U.S. Senator Jake Garn of Utah did not wait until his death to donate his left kidney. His 27-year-old daughter, Susan Garnhorn, suffered from progressive kidney failure due to diabetes. Her condition deteriorated, and doctors determined that she needed a kidney transplant immediately. Jake Garn and his two sons were all found to be compatible donors, but the senator insisted that he should be the one to give the kidney. Her mother carried her for nine months, he said, and I am honored to give her part of me. So in a Washington, D.C. hospital, a six-hour surgical procedure was performed to remove one of his kidneys and to implant it into his daughter. The news broadcast the story on Garns, and in it was a comment from the doctor who put the donated kidney into Susan's body. At a press briefing at Georgetown University Hospital, the doctor said, the senator is awake, has a bit of a grin on his face. He seems very self-satisfied and happy and peaceful. For sure, the senator had to be in pain at that moment. The incision through which his kidney was removed goes from his back to his front ribs. There were tubes in him, needles yet to come, and several weeks of recuperation lay ahead. But he was smiling. That grit on Jake Garn's face could have meant only one thing, no regrets. My friends, love makes it possible for a person to do the most difficult and dreaded of things without looking back and without regret. Think for a moment about what Jesus did to save you. He left the worship of angels to be born in a stable. He accepted the limitations of human form, suffered indignities of the greatest magnitude, and shed His lifeblood to purchase your redemption. The most outstanding thing about all He did is that there is not a word in the Bible which indicates that the Son of God regretted doing it. On the day of His ascension back to the Father, there may have been a grin, a smile on His face. Now, if the Son of God can give up His life for us without regret, can we do the same for others? In verse 17, John gives a very practical example of what our Christian love should look like. I read now verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, 
how does the love of God abide in him? Would you circle the phrase, sees his brother in need? Because that is when our love in action is to be practiced. You know, it's relatively easy to love people who don't have much need because you know they won't demand very much of you. But it's tough to love people in need simply because you know they will take from you your time and your resources. But the Bible tells us that it is a responsibility of those who have the means to help those who are in need. Because Christians who turn away from people with a no need would therefore not be emulating what God would do in the very same situation. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth stating again. We serve the Lord and give back to Him by helping others. God doesn't tangibly need anything from us. He, in fact, owns everything. So He directs us to express our thanks to Him by helping others. And now verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Here in verse 18, John pulls it all together and emphasizes the point that we are to love others not only in words, but in action and in truth, meaning we are to love righteousness, which is our first principle. But here we have love redefined number three. Love is expressed in our readiness to do anything without limits. Love is expressed in our readiness to do anything without limits. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not merely to show love to others in words. We are to take action, a ready and willing desire to do anything that is required to help a person in need and to satisfy what they need. For example, if someone needs a pair of shoes, do you give them just one shoe? If someone is hungry, do you give them a puppy? If someone needs someone else to talk to, do you send money? If a student needs help with his homework, do you buy them food? Of course not. The one who needs shoes needs both shoes. The one who is hungry needs food. The one who needs someone to talk to needs someone else to talk to, not money. The student who needs help with homework needs someone to help them explain the concepts they're struggling with. When there is a need, that need should be met. So when the world needed someone to save them from sin, God sent a Savior, His own Son, to die in our place to save us. If He sent us a good moral teacher or a politician or a leader, it wouldn't have met our needs. He did what was required to satisfy our need of a Savior, even if it meant the death of His own Son. That would be what we call a radical type of love, to lay down His own life to satisfy what we needed. You see, we often talk about living out radical love, but it is often not as radical as we think it is because we place limitations in our expressions of love. We base the extent of how far we're willing to go in the expression of love based on our relationship with the person whom we want to express love to. For example, if your child whom you love dearly asks you for a toy for Christmas, would you give it to him? What about a car, a house, a kidney, your very life? I think we would give our child those things because we love our child. But what if a complete stranger asks you for the very same thing and asks you for the very same toy for Christmas? Would you give it to him? Probably. What about the same car, perhaps if you're feeling generous? What about the same house, only if you're uber rich? What about your kidney, your very life? Maybe not. But shouldn't it be the same, whether it's the child or the stranger asking, 
because we say we love all people equally. But as you can see, our level of love is not the same. However, the radical Christian love we are to display to the world should be the same as God's love towards us, as He was willing to do anything without limits for every single one of us while we were still sinners and strangers to Him. Now, I know you may be thinking, does that mean I have to give away everything I have? No, of course not. Living out love does not mean we don't set personal boundaries or meet our expectations and responsibilities to take care of our own families and other obligations. What I'm simply sharing with you is the biblical emphasis of the type of radical, sacrificial love we are to express to one another, which finds its example in what Jesus did. As many of you know, these past two months I've taken up cycling, and I've been biking with the group. One of the realities of long bike rides on various terrain is that it is inevitable that someone gets a flat tire. Now, I don't know how to change a bike flat, and it's not easy for me because I don't simply have those skills. But thankfully, there are a few guys in the group who can do it. I learned that when you change a bike flat, you replace the inner rubber tube. Well, recently on a long bike ride to Antipolo, someone got a flat tire, and it was changed. But unbeknownst to us was that there was a glass shard embedded in the outer rubber wheel that was puncturing the inner rubber tube. So after a few more kilometers, the tire went flat again, and it had to be changed. And then after a few more kilometers, the tire went flat again. Imagine in one ride, the same tire for the same rider went flat three times. Now, would you have the loving patience in the heat of the sun to change a tire, not once, not twice, but three times. I would have told the rider after the second flat, maybe you just need to take a grab back home because your tire is jinxed. But the men who knew how to change tires probably changed four to five tires that day, a very hot, sunny day, getting themselves all dirty out of a sacrificial love. When I think about those experiences, I remember that love is expressed in our readiness to do anything without limits. I read now verses 19 and 20. For by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In verses 19 and 20, John reminds us that God knows the real motives of why we do what we do. The expression of our love for others is unfortunately clouded in bias, conditions, and prejudgments but God knows the motives of why we do what we do. We are to love one another whether they deserve it or not, but we often show forth love only if we think they deserve it. You see, it's so easy to love the lovable, but difficult to love the unlovable. And yet, through the eyes of our Lord, all people are deserving to be loved by Him. So while our hearts may deceptively direct the motives for our expression of love, The God who knows all things knows the true motives of our hearts. Verse 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. In verses 21 and 22, John states that if our motive for loving others is pure, That means our heart is in alignment with God's heart. And since hearts are aligned, then whatever we ask in prayer will be granted since our will and desire is God's will and desire. 
These two verses, again, point us to having a heart like God's, where how He sees people, how He sees truth and righteousness is how we should see people and value righteousness. There should be true heart alignment. And finally, in verse 23, John comes back to his overall theme, which is that love is righteousness in action. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. The command is simple. Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. You see, we often define love as a feeling between two people. So if we don't have that loving feeling towards another individual, then we do not love him or her and vice versa. But because our hearts, with its bias and prejudice, often clouding how biblical love is to be truly expressed towards others, then we need to understand that our love for others should not be based on how we feel towards them, but our love for them should be a matter between you and God. And this is love redefined number four. Loving others is a matter between you and God and not between you and that person. Loving others is a matter between you and God and not between you and that person. Let me explain this. If loving others is based on your interactions with that person or you thinking if they deserve it or not, then many times we will not love that person because they didn't do anything for me or we don't feel they deserve for me to love them back. But because it is a matter between you and God, when the God who loves me and died for me tells me I am to love others as an expression of my love back to Him, then I really have no choice but to love others. So practically, if my spouse, child, family member, or friend says or does something that hurts me deeply, then they don't deserve that I continue to love them and express love to them. However, because the expression of my love for them is not based on my relationship with them, but on my relationship with God, then I will follow His commands and in loving response to what Christ did for me, I will look over those hurts and will continue to still love my family, friends, and strangers who hurt me. This is how a wife could forgive her husband and love him again, even if he cheated on her. This is how a child can forgive his or her parents for emotional abuse and love them again, even if they have treated them so wrong. This is how you can forgive a friend, even if they have stabbed you in the back and love them again. Not because any of them deserve it, but because of your relationship with the loving God who did the same for you. Notice that verse 23 doesn't give any conditions for loving others. It simply says, it is a command of God. And if we believe in His finished work on the cross for us, then we are to love one another. The reason for us to love one another is because He first loved us. You see, the expression of our loving others stems from a relationship we have with a loving God. A transactional love will never get us to love one another deeply, but a heavenly love that is experienced and overflowing will overflow into the lives of others. John Piper once shared this, Have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a love for the lost? It is a term we use as part of our Christian jargon. Many believers search their hearts in condemnation, looking for the arrival of some feeling of benevolence that will propel them into bold evangelism. It will never happen. It is impossible to love the lost. You can't feel deeply for an abstraction or a concept. You will find it impossible to love deeply an unfamiliar individual 
portrayed in a photograph, let alone a nation or a race or something as vague as all lost people. But don't wait for a feeling or love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your heavenly Father, and you know that this stranger is created by Him, but separated from Him. So take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of compassion for humanity that we share our faith or pray for the lost. It is, first of all, love for God. This is the point I'm trying to make. Loving others is a matter between you and God and not between you and that person. I end with the story of an old Italian man who lived alone in the country. He wanted to dig his tomato garden, but it was very hard work as the ground was hard. His only son, Vincent, who used to help him, was in prison. And so the old man wrote a letter to his son and described his predicament. Dear Vincent, I'm feeling pretty bad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a garden plot. I know if you were here, my troubles would be over. I know you would be happy to dig the plot for me. Love, Dad. A few days later, he received a letter from his son. Dear Dad, don't dig up the garden. That's where I buried the bodies. Love, Vinny. At 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents and the local police arrived and dug up the entire area without finding any bodies. They apologized to the old man and left. That same day, the old man received another letter from his son. Dear Dad, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. Love your son, Vinny. I love this story because it illustrates the crazy ways we express love today. But jokes aside, we need to express love to others in a way that the Bible teaches, and it may require us to redefine love away from the world's definition. You see, love redefined number one is that love is not the tolerance of wrongs, but the upholding of righteousness and truth. Love redefined number two. Followers of Jesus love one another because they are new creations in Christ, not because they have to, but because they want to as new creation. Love redefined number three. Love is expressed in our readiness to do anything without limits. Love redefined number four. Remember that loving others is a matter between you and God and not between you and that person. My friends, when we understand these biblical concepts and expressions of love, we will build up a confident faith that will help us navigate these challenging and changing times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that the Bible helps define for us what love is. And it does so through the expression and the example of what You did when You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Father, sometimes the love we think that we express that is radical is nuanced, it is biased, it has prejudice because we only show love to the people that we like. But yet the Bible reminds us that we are to love all people, everyone, our fellow brethren. Help us to look to You so that we can express love in such a way that it is unconditional like the unconditional love You shown in our lives. Father, help us to define love through the biblical lenses that we're called to do. Bless your people. Help them to understand what First John is trying to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.